Hello, this is What Goes Around. My name is Deb Grant. And my name is Eamon Murtaugh. And today, on this bumper Christmas special, well, bump, first, bump, bump. first of all, <laughs> me and Eamon are going to be exchanging Christmas gifts, as is our Yay. tradition. We've got an hour Christmas gift uh, for one another, and um, I can't wait for Eamon to hear what I've got wrapped up for him. And I'm going to treat the fabulous Deb Grant to a little record dig on the sunny, well, let's face it, dark and cold streets of Bristol. It's fucking freezing. It was fucking freezing. And we're going to be joined by producer extraordinaire, the man behind the Strokes debut album, which kicked off a whole musical movement. The wonderful Gordon Raphael is with us in conversation. Is this it? Is this it? That's a really clever Gordon Raphael link. You see, he produced Is This It? Oh, I know, I was it. going with it. I was going with it. He sounded Christmas, too perplexed. That horrible to me. That's because I'm a good actor. <laughs> is this it? I don't know, is it? Where, 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 are, we, where are we going now? Anyway, let's go pod. With it. Let's pod for fuck's sake. <laughs> Dev Grant, please tell me what goes around in your wonderful world. Hello, how are you? Well, I'm okay. What's the news with you? Anything exciting happening? What is the news? Well, it's a balmy 12 degrees today as I record this. It's been fucking freezing. Oh, yeah. Like, it's got, it was like minus five. uh, It's minus eight here. Oh, it's not a competition. Minus eight probably feels like minus five anyway. Um, but yes, the the river froze. I had to watch all the geese, like <laughs> this big horde of geese landed down on the river. And uh, they were so confused that the river had frozen. Oh. They were taking all these little tentative steps like, what the, where's the, what? Um, it's very much like Londoners in any sort of extreme weather, isn't <laughs> <No>. it? <laughs> it was so- Rain from the sky! <laughs> I think that's why I tugged at my heartstrings because I, I empathised so much with them. I was like, I don't know what's going on either, guys. I don't like walking on it either. Um, but it's been, you know, it's a nice time of year for, for cosy tunes. I've busted out the Nat King Cole. Lou Rawls has oh. some lovely Christmas songs. Um, Ray Charles has some lovely Christmas songs. Obviously, none of them compare to the greatest Christmas song of all time. I think you think I know what I'm going to say. I'm not talking about the waitresses. I'm talking, of course, about Step Into Christmas by Elton John. One of the oh, greatest yes, Christmas yes. songs, yeah, if yeah, not yeah. the you, greatest you Christmas like song. You do like that one, don't you? Do like that, right? I yeah. more than like it. It's a classic. Th- that's on my... So I'm having an interesting experience, actually. I'm seeing this guy who's really, really, really into music, but he knows everything in terms of albums and I'm very much I guess because I've been working in radio for such a long time I'm a real not necessarily like not a singles person but like a person who will sort of jetty between between single songs because I'm always got my what, what you're saying is you're like these millennials you've got the attention span of a nap I'm not you like can't a millennial three minutes I am a millennial <laughs> you are a millennial see that's it um, my, so <laughs> my musical experience is just as valid as yours thank you it is but you know like the, the funny thing about it is is if you like if you go back and read about it you know I love that music, educate pop- yourself go back and read about it 
So rude. <laughs> Alright, granddad. What I meant was there was it, it's kind of come full circle is what I was gonna say. Mm. Because, you know, originally all the, the, the rock and roll and the blues was all like three minute hits, wasn't it? it was blah, 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 blah. And then the sixties came along, everyone got stoned and went, Oh, we've got time to kill. So let's do a whole album. And then <laughs> yeah, we got really into the whole album thing throughout the seventies and eighties and then the nineties became a bit more dance culture. And now, well, now because of the internet, it's like you don't even get the whole song, do you? You just get like yeah. the intro. I know. Don't or, bore or us. Like Hit a, us with the chorus. Yeah, or it's like a one-minute Instagram reel, or God forbid, a TikTok uh, video with Louis did, Theroux did doing a terrible rap. That's what we've been reduced to. Yeah, exactly. When you're being requested memes in the in the booth, it's not yeah, a good sign. I know. Maybe I'm a millennial, but at least I'm not a fucking Gen Z. They've got to be the Oof. worst listeners of all. Although maybe it's come uh, full circle. I don't am know I a Gen Z? What am I? You're a Gen I think X. I'm Gen X. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You're We're a... the cool ones. We kind of slot between the deeply untrendy boomers and the, the <laughs> non-comprehensible millennials. So we're doing pretty good. I find Gen X, the whole Gen X thing, very aspirational. Because Gen X was like when I was sort of, you know, six, seven, eight years old in the early 90s when MTV was a big thing and like, you know, mm. the, like piercings and tattoos and all of that stuff and Beavis and Butthead, that made a huge impression on me. So I am a millennial, but I feel like... But you admire heart, me and you want to be like I, me when you, when you grow up. I, I couldn't say it. I couldn't say it in so many words, but yes, that's basically <laughs> what I'm saying. But yeah, so I, I sort of listen to single tracks. The way I listen to music is I when I'm out and about anyway. Obviously, when I'm listening to records, it's different. But when I'm out and about and I'm listening to Spotify, I just have one gigantic playlist and I just put oh. it on shuffle. <laughs> oh, and I'd hold my silk hanky to my nose and wave thee away. Oh, oh, what are you doing to me? I can't believe Jesus. you never knew that about me. I'm only coming to realise that it's quite an unusual thing because, like I say, I'm seeing this guy who's like, oh, do you know this thing off that album? And I'm like, when I say I like this artist, I mean I like these two songs, which I play, oh, mate, you know, mate, on my you're, radio you're pressing show. my buttons today. You're pressing my buttons. <laughs> this Christmas. is so wrong. But what I was going... No, no, we're not back to... <laughs> Give me a talking to, go on. But... but uh, uh, Get the words out. <laughs> Deep breath. Uh, albums are where it's at, man. Albums are where it's at. That's where, the, that's where the full expression of the artist comes out at. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and I'm an album guy, for sure. I'm 100% an album guy. I'm a 12-inch guy as well. I mean, I like singles. They're cute and that. But, you know, I don't want to be getting up every two, three minutes. I know, you know but I want, when I want, I'm talking I want, about song... listening to my Spotify, though, in my headphones when I'm out and about. And but like... don't you ever just want that full-flowing Occasionally, in album? Occasionally, yeah, yes. Occasionally. Generally okay. speaking, and that is why... Um, that is why Step Into Christmas is in my sort of musical listening dun, repertoire dun, dun, all year round because I'm just listening dun, dun, on shuffle dun, the whole time. Same with the waitresses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, I've always got time for the waitresses. That's you know, they, 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 you know, people people mock it, but it's a great little record. Nobody mocks great... it. Who mocks it? I got quite a lot of crap last year for going on about the waitresses. And I played what? it out once and this this girl came up to me. She didn't say anything. She just walked up to me and then rolled her eyes performatively and then walked away. <laughs> well, people are sensitive about Christmas music in general, aren't it they? It was fucking Christmas. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't playing it at Easter. I should be allowed to play. I mean, I, lit I literally have a, a roster of maybe three songs I might play at Christmas. What are the other ones? Uh, Mamacita Dondesta Santa Claus, which nobody really knows, but it's like a Spanish thing, which is just brilliant. Where he goes, all right, Mamacita, I got to sleep now. See, I, I, I mean, I love that one. Uh, I'm not even sure what the other one would be. Probably, 
I tell you what, I, I don't know if I'd play it out, but I, I, I actually, I like the really miserable one, you know, the Greg Lake one where he's just going, um, and Father Christmas turned out to be my dad and everything was crap and I woke and felt shit and it was rubbish and Christmas was ruined. It's bloody Christmas. Do you know that one? No, I don't. They said there'd be snow at Christmas. They said there'd be peace on earth. Instead, it just kept on raining in time for oh, the new yes, king's birth. You know that one? I mean, yes, that, I, I love that because that is piss on your chips Christmas song, isn't yes. it? That is like... You're all having fun? Well, I've got something to say. <laughs> Fuck you. It's not, it can't be as bad though as Wrong Tom's suggestion. Was it oh, last year? Shooting the paedophile Santa? <laughs> yeah. Fuck me. I, you see, the, the more we talked about that, he starts off, if you, if you, listeners, if you haven't, if you didn't catch it last year, go back to last year's Christmas special and listen to Wrong Tom try and justify a song about killing Santa in a shopping mall as, <laughs> as, as a warranted Christmas theme for the What Goes Around podcast. I mean, I just wasn't having it. No, what did we pick Sonra in the end, didn't we? That was our Christmas Yeah, I think song. we did. And that, that, that's fine. We still like that. That's, that's what, a Christmas that's classic. Good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Listen, I've given you a big download there and I've given you, I dropped a bombshell on you. So <laughs> I'm, I'm still reeling. I, oh. <laughs> You're one of those people that takes like, you know, bits of what's going on and chops it away from the rest of the album and sticks it next to Elton John singing about Christmas. There's no <laughs> wrong know. way to enjoy music, Eamon. Just remember it's that. True. It's true. As it's long true, as I'm listening. It's so hard not to be judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> is that not the, is that not the whole the whole vibe no, that of is podcast. our stick that, that is, is our stick, stick. trying very just, very hard not to be judgmental just very occasionally you press one of the buttons you mean, it's like you know <laughs> that um alan partridge uh quote where he goes oh my favorite beatles album is probably best of the probably beatles the best of the beatles <laughs> uh, do not put me in that case not how you're thinking no, about I'm, me right no I'm, I'm just i'm just i'm just riding this pony for all it's worth it's christmas <laughs> i want to have one of those you know i want us to you know push out the the genuine feeling of a, of a christmas get together by at least one of us coming around the Christmas dinner table talking about something that nobody agrees with and causing an almighty fuss before the before pudding's even out. What goes around? Well, as it is Christmas... We should give each other Christmas presents. And as we're not in the same physical location and we do do a podcast, we should do it in the form of an audio file. Yes. <laughs> that is the true spirit of Christmas. It is the true spirit <laughs> Have of some non-tangible electrons. That's and, true. Uh, and, and enjoy this song. So listen, we both had to think about what we want. Now, I know I struggled to find something for, for you. And, and I know you struggled to find something with me for me and I know that I struggled because there are so many possibilities for, to give a woman like yourself and given the current situation and everything we've been through and I know that you struggled because you forgot about it <laughs> until five minutes before the show. Amen. <laughs> so let's start with you shall we? <laughs> okay yes I would love to because it doesn't matter that I forgot because I know you so well, Eamon, and I have mm. such a bounty of delicious little tunes, which I could have wrapped up in a bow and given to you. I thought I would play you uh, an adorable little song because, Eamon, I know that you have had quite a tough year. I know there have been mm. ups and downs, but, you know, you're settling into Bristol life 
and you've you've more established than you were at the beginning of the year but I know that it's been tough on you um you know settling in and getting gigs and finding your people and uh I think next year you're gonna do really well but I think you're gonna need a little mazel a little bit of good luck and that's why I've chosen this song for you okay I'm gonna put my speaker up to the stick, stick it up Gotta have a little mazel, cause mazel means good luck. And if you have a mazel, you always have a buck. And if you have a mazel, and though you're on the ball, well, you're gonna try and try, you never get by. You beat your head against the wall. Don't ever try to figure why You know you're not to blame My cousin made a million And can't even write his name (laughs) I love it. I love it. What is that? It's the Ravens. It's called Mazel. Means good luck. And it's essentially about how, you know, as long as you have a little bit of luck, then, uh, then you're grand, even if you can't write your own name. Just oh, have that's, little, I mean, that is that is incredibly apt because mm. I, I barely can write my own name. <laughs> if, if <laughs> that's I'm why you're a DJ. And I'm shit out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, like that Robert, that Robert Cray song where he goes, if I didn't have bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. <laughs> well, now you got a little, you've got the luck of the Jews, Eamon. A little bit of mazel. Ah, that's what I need. That's, that's what, what I want I for you for 2023. Oh, mate, that sounds great. That sounds brilliant. Well, listen, I've got one for you. And it's again a, a, a similar kind of thing because I feel like um, we, we're both we're both changing, evolving people. Mm. We're facing new challenges in our life. Mm. We're moving on to different areas, and we have to we have to be brave. We have okay, to be Oprah. strong. We've got to go forward. <laughs> but one of the things I, what we do, I know you do this, and I do this, is that we overthink things. Mm. Yeah, that basically uh, we 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 look at the problem ahead and then we count the number of ways we can catastrophize mm-hmm. the outcoming scenario. So, my present to you is a, 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 a disco song from Africa by a man called Joe Bisso, and this is called "Don't Think About It, Just Do It." It's like the proto Nike advert, but it, it, this makes me incredibly happy, and I think it's very very apt for us. It's all very good. It's a bit very um, white suit VIP room vibe. Yeah, that's my vibe. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have to queue. They went I 
mean, obviously, you won't be a different man. But... <laughs> Maybe I will. You don't know what's coming for me in 2023. Um, That's true. You did say there were changes ahead, but yeah, I wasn't well... expecting you to go that far. But it's it's uplifting. And also, uh, what we do do is we, we kind of, uh, sometimes we think too much and we, we talk ourselves out of situations. And I don't think we should do that. I think mm. we should just run 2023 shouting, forget what's gone before. That's gone. Yes. That's gone. Let's take it. Let's don't, don't think about it. Just do it. I love that. I really, yeah. really, do you know what? Genuinely, I really, really need that. Because, you know, when you approach the end of a year, mm. you do think a little bit about, like, what have I failed to achieve this year? You know, there's certain things mm. I wanted to do. Like, uh, there's so many, like, I'm, I'm a terrible one for New Year's resolutions. I know it's a cliche. I can't help myself. And I have these very lofty resolutions that I write down every year. And then I forget about them. <laughs> and then I revisit them again. And I'm like, no, I didn't manage to do any of that. So ah, I've got one. I had one New Year's resolution last year. And it does. This really helps. I've done this mm. twice in my life. Mm. Uh, the first time I ended up with a daughter. And a new Jesus. a new career as a DJ, yeah. And the second time was last year when I was so miserable. This time mm. last year, I just I just needed to turn it around. And the New Year's resolution was just say yes. Oh, whatever it is, whatever. If someone says, "Are you coming out on Thursday?" Don't go. Oh, I've just got to see if Master Chef the professionals on. <laughs> just say yes. Just go if you possibly can. Do it. You know, don't think about yeah. it. Just do it, like yeah. Joe Pissou says. And honestly, that has really helped because that has, that has that's got me outside. It's got me a, a couple of gigs and it's got me a couple of friends. And, uh, well, that's what you need, Love isn't it? That. Has it? Has it gotten you into any precarious situations? Well, like I said, last time it got me a daughter. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> we love Frida. She's a treasure. We do. She's the yeah, best. The she's absolute the best. best. Um, now, it, it, you know, I just think it's a funny thing when you, because you, when you do actually commit to just saying yes to anything that's put in front of you, like you, to say it out loud, you think, God, that, that loads of terrible things could happen. But actually what really happens is you just, you don't find excuses for not mm. making yourself happy or for changing a situation. So rather than, um, you know, someone said, oh, we come to this thing at this house, you might meet someone, you know, oh, I'm a bit weird and I might not get there, I might not like mm. it. Uh, you just say yes, and then you go, and then things happen. And, you know, nine times out of ten, it's going to be something slightly positive for you. So that would be my thing for you. Just don't write that. loads. Just be positive. Just do yeah. it. Yeah, just do it. you got love the that. power to get into it. Oh, my God. I feel so empowered. Oh, God, let's run around the garden naked. Yeah, let's fucking jump up and down on Oprah's couch. I feel amazing after that. This is what the listeners need as well. Yeah, just do it, guys. Just say yes. That's the that's the WGA motto for 2023. Just say yes. Indeed. Happy Christmas. Happy Annika. Mazel tov. Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. I am speaking to you live from Bristol Temple Meads Railway Station, where I'm awaiting the arrival of, no, not Santa, but DJ Deb Grant, all the way from the metropolis of London. Oh, it's so exciting. Every wave of people that comes off every train promises to deliver the possibility of DJ Deb Grant, but none seem to have done so, so far. And she wasn't on the train she was supposed to be on. 
and I'm now waiting for the next train and I think she might have a little bit of travel chaos happening. That's okay. Got my headphones. Listen to a bit of music. Reunited? I think so. Okay, pod fans, this is it. It's 14.35 in Bristol. We're awaiting the second coming of DJ Deb Grant. Did she forget her bags? Did she buy a ticket? Did she buy two tickets? Or maybe even three? You just don't know. There are people coming towards me. Many of them look hmm, unhappy. None of them look like Deb. After all, there's only one Deb. Thank God. Wait, wait, there's a green, green coat, green coat. Oh, she's looking very sartorially elegant. She's busying through the traffic like she knows exactly what she's doing. She's got a face on, the travelling faces on. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm okay. Well, it's not going to be difficult to spot you, is it? What are you trying to say? Well, you're just like a vision in green. I'm a quality street. If I had one of those chroma key things now, I could, <laughs> I could beam all sorts of images upon you. Oh, my God, we're Christmas. Oh, I'm yeah, you're red. Didn't oh, the holly and the ivy and all oh, that. This oh, is nice. good audio content, isn't oh, it? Oh, this is what they pay for. So they do pay for it, don't they? Yeah, you, you're a little late. What happens? Oh, my goodness. So, first of all, this is why I should be famous, because I literally can't do anything for myself. Yeah, I you need, need someone, yeah. you need, like, a minder. I really do need a minder, so... I booked the train for the wrong day. I booked it for yesterday. Good work. Good work. And, then, and there's no one I can blame but myself. It's just me being a time. First I saw it, I was like, ah, oh, some kind of admin error. And then I looked back, <laughs> I, I traced back my own paper trail and I was like, no, this is entirely my fault. I am the admin. I, yeah. Have you got special tickets? Yes, I've got special idiot tickets. <laughs> it costs three times as much. Yeah. Good. And then I chose to collect them at the station uh-huh. and I didn't bring my debit card to collect my ticket. Oh, man. And then <laughs> I got on the train but then it was the wrong train. What? <laughs> so I got on the train that was leaving after the one I was supposed to get and I didn't have my ticket. So you deliberately got on a later train? I didn't deliberately get on it. I saw that it said Bristol Temple Mead and I was like, that's my train. And then it went past the time my train was supposed to be leaving and I was like, oh, no one said anything. This is a bit shit. And then I realised I got on the wrong train and then the ticket man came around and I was like, I did a silly thing. No, no. <laughs> well, this is, forget all that. It's all in the past now. Behold. Yeah. Bristol. 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 So, so here we are on Gloucester Road, at the top of Gloucester Road, and this is one of the newer record shops in Bristol. And it's really small. It's called Disc Frisk. And uh, when I say it's small, I mean, you've got more records than this record shop has. <laughs> but what I like about them is their small selection is weird. Mmm, yeah. weird is good. It is like weird my record collection yeah. then, small <laughs> yeah. and weird. Let's go, let's go surprise Let's go. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it's quite weird. They've got some nice creepy artwork as well. There's only like three racks. Oh, I see a copy of Bill Brewster's book, Last Night of DJ Saved My Life. You're going to like them, you see. Oh, you can tell that sort of thing. Hey guys. Hello. How are you doing? We're good. How are you? Um, we're just doing a little bit for our podcast, What Goes Around. Okay, sure. We're doing a little trawl through the record shops yeah. of Bristol. 
This is very well curated. That's yeah. what I said. You see, it's yeah. really small. Yeah. But it's weird stuff. It is weird stuff. It's my favourite kind of stuff. So you've only been here, what, eight, nine months, something? Since May, yeah. May, yeah, so not very long. Yeah, not very long at all. Is it going all right? Yes, yeah, going well, thank you. Good. Um, we've been online since September last year, so we've kind of had our sort of anniversary. I love these descriptions. Megasynth, funk from Thailand, dance floor goodness, deviant pop jam with killer synths. Yes. Steady rhythm. The, I, the, see, the, the, I thought you'd like this place because, like, when I come in here, it's one of the places where most places you're looking through and you go, Yeah, I know that. Yeah, like, this is like, What the hell is that? What is see? this? You see? You see? <laughs> I knew you'd like it here. <laughs> is this stuff all, all curated as per your taste? Um, What's your buying? Yeah, so my buying taste is around anything from 70s to yeah. 90s. Yeah. That's weird, got simps. Yeah. Um, anything that's hard to find or was missed um, back then by people, really. Just mm. to kind of give it another life. Is Where do you find them? Yeah. Can't, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped myself asking that question. No, um, everywhere, really. So if we have gigs abroad, mm. go to all the record shops, um, try and bring as many back as we can. Any friends over there, they've got double copies of things. We'll get them there again. They send them over to us. We'll buy doubles. Yeah, it's just everywhere. Mm. We went into other shops. We're like, oh, we've seen this many times before. Mm. We can't just have that because everyone else has got it. We need to do mm. something different. And that was the incentive behind it, especially the music we play ourselves as DJs. We're always trying to bring back the old era of trying to show people new music they don't know. Yeah. And yeah. that's always been the thing. I mean, if it makes people dance, that's, that's irrelevant. But... That's how I feel. But, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I'm in the wrong crowd it, here. To make it even harder for ourselves to make it more of a profession as what DJs would call it, yeah. I think they should always be looking for stuff that yeah. Yeah. is new to the crowd, yeah, yeah, yeah. in my opinion. I mean, that to me is like uh, a lot of what radio is about. That's why I find radio a lot more gratifying than yeah. DJing in clubs yeah. and stuff, because yeah. you have a... So your audience is already curated. They're there yeah. with you. You don't have to that's watch true. them leave. Yeah, that's <laughs> just true. Um, what's the name of your DJ crew? Um, so I founded Kane the Hermit. Yeah. And we founded Disfrisk. Oh, yeah. As a Disc- both of us, and he's Maurice Silla. Okay. Right. Um, but yeah, we, we, when we play together, we play as Disfrisk. Yeah. yeah. Clearing yeah. dance floors all over the nation. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, listen. Um, Really nice to meet you. I'm nice sure I'll be back next time in Bristol. I'll give you a shout when we're uh, putting it on. Nice one, have a good one with us. No worries. Nice to meet you. What a great place. It's cool, isn't it? It's just my kind of place. It is. Oh, everything in there is really fucking weird. Yeah, but that's what I like. But it reminds me of like when I went to Japan and everything looked amazing and I just yeah. randomly bought a yeah. load of stuff and then took it home and it was dog shit. <laughs> I'm sure I think when you're on holiday shit. though, that's, there's a real tendency to oh, get overexcited and you just I, buy stuff. Yeah, I bought so much dreadful salsa when I was in Greece and took it home and I was like, oh, I don't want this. <laughs> I sold it to the mighty Zaf. I had to really work hard to convince him to take it. So the nice thing about this bit of Bristol is, this is like, you know, like um, Manchester's got the Curry Mile. Uh, Bristol has this tiny little uh, record quarter of a mile. Yeah. Which, uh, which I love small, like, I love places that really pull more than their weight in terms of record shops. Newcastle is like that as well. Right, so the next place we're going to 
is a place called Prime Cuts. Prime Cuts, all right. And it is hidden. And it's um, a record shop, not a butcher. No, it's definitely a record shop, but you will get some tasty little slices in there. Okay. And what I like about Prime Cuts is it reminds me a bit of Eldica. Remember we went to Eldica? Eldica, yes. Eldica, yeah. Yes. Uh, it reminds me a bit of there because the, like stuff comes in and it just gets piled up and piled up. <laughs> and you have to, there's no point going in here for 20 minutes, yes. which is probably what we're going to do. Yeah. You could spend the day down here. You can't go in there with an agenda, that type of place. It's like yeah. trying to do your supermarket shopping in Lidl. There's just no point. Yeah, yeah, you just got to take what comes. Which, here we go, look, here we go, Prime Cuts. Ooh, can and I it's look, underneath can I look at this vintage clothes vintage shop. <laughs> Don't be sidetracked by the fashion. <laughs> oh, I've lost her. She's gone. <laughs> Yeah, these steps are a little bit on the dangerous side, so uh, it's very steep. It is terrible. <laughs> Hello, Mike. Where's that lovely boy? How are you? I'm good. Yourself? I'm okay. Um, I'm, I'm on podcast duty. This is Hello. my friend Hello. Deb Grant. Nice to meet you. We're doing what goes around with, and uh, we're basically on a little record tour of. Eamon's been singing your praises non-stop okay. for the past uh, 10 yeah. or 15 minutes. Like that. He's my biggest fan. Quite sick of it, to be honest. I'm yeah. his biggest fan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. But I did say he had quite a lot of records in. This is Describe amazing. Describe the scene. I mean, this is like a little... It's like the Himalayas made of vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is that above your head? Shit, I'm six weeks pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> just, is this like ephemera that you find inside record yeah. sleeves? I remember one time when I was working in Flashback, we got a record that came in with this like pamphlet. I think it was from the Catholic Church. Was it from the Catholic Church? Maybe it was about the rhythm method of contraception. Oh, it was okay. like a very sort of, um, uh, yes, it was quite a detailed guide to amazing. the rhythm method. That was a real that bit of sounds, treasure. That sounds amazing. It's from the 70s, yeah, it was amazing. I, I had a, a penis pump catalog. <laughs> Inside in, a record? Inside a, a very kind of um, sort of yeah, sort of serious hip-hop album. I don't know if it was that joke or... <laughs> <laughs> but it was just a really complete contrast. That is you know, amazing. Why isn't that hanging up on the wall? When I... Uh, I actually set it free. I, I, I just put it back in and just sold it oh, on. Good. And, uh, oh, good. I'm going to let it go on its adventure. Yeah, that's very generous. Anyway, I, uh, I, see, I see a disco, not disco man. section over there, so yeah, get out of my you. way. Yeah, that's the one. There's also a phenomenal amount of... Um, Disco rap in the corner. Oh, my favourite. Oh, my God. You've got a whole sugar nut. Oh, Mike. How long have you been open, Mike? Uh, 22 years. 22 years. That's good pushing, going. I suppose it's pushing 20... Starting my 23rd year, yeah. It was wow. October... Something like that. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. It's... No, that's a decent innings for any shop. It's just over 22. It's so good to see such a good... Big fat old school hip hop. Yeah, section. it doesn't stop there as well. Because all this like old school hip hop and zing babies in the corner. But yeah, yeah. what I like especially, and I, mean, I never see this in any other record shop. Yeah. Today, electro. Yes. A whole. Head in there next. That is like two and a half, three That's feet really deep of electro, and like there is nowhere that I have seen in the past ten years that has that much yeah. electro in stock. So. Is that true? Well, you never see it anywhere. Never even see a section for it. No, it really. It would be with, with hip hop, yeah. yeah. You know that my personal poison chalice, my kryptonite, is Toto Africa. Oh, I can't, God. I can't do it. Mike, what did you do with Toto Africa? Um, so I played it 
uh, back to back of vinyl for 12 hours straight. What was 12 this? Some hours. Kind of charity. Yeah, charity yeah, yeah, it was a charity event. It, 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 but then you think they couldn't, you couldn't stop because everyone wanted more, didn't they? You, you got uh, uh, no, that was a very definite point. I was like, no, I'm stopping now, that's it. I remember because I came in here and it, I, I don't know why we got onto the subject, but I started to say how much I hate that record. And, then, and I almost said, there was this guy I read about in The Guardian who played this yeah. song. Yeah. And it was you. Yeah. So there you go. What was the, hang on, what was the context? What, it was like a charity fundraiser thing. Well, if I'm honest, the idea kind of came before anything. It was because uh, Total Africa was such a floor filler. And me and a friend we were just drunk one day and, and we you know and, and I said oh, we might as well just play that all night you know and then the idea just kind of stuck and then I started talking about it uh, almost obsessively and then after a while people started asking me oh, have you done that night yet and I thought well, I'm gonna have to, had to do it yeah um yeah. and um I, I I thought maybe I should do this as a charity thing and it turned out there's a, a, a Bristol-based charity that works in Malawi um, and so I kind of hooked up with them and they made it go viral. They made it go kind of, yeah, so, so they had links at the BBC and then it went, it just went worldwide. It's just crazy, amazing. absolutely crazy. And do you often listen to Tatum Africa yeah. anymore? <laughs> uh, not, not often, but but once a week I, I do play it. Really? You still go there? Yeah, wow. but, but, it's, but it, I, I can feel my brain shutting down about, <laughs> about three quarters of the way through. Yes. Like, it's, it's, it's like it just kind of, I can't yeah. hear it, you know. It's a bit of a, bit of a sort of a quiet Vietnam moment. Uh -huh. Yeah, I totally, yeah. Um, so you're going to buy that? I'm going to buy this. Okay. Enjoy New York Street Rap, the Disco 4, do it, do it. Do it, do it. It's basically like an algorithm made it created a record <laughs> cover just for me. So you know that all that AI stuff that's going yeah, around yeah. at the moment where you just type in a few things. Yeah. That's basically that that's what it would be. It's make all, for you. all the shit I like in one in there one you go. ten pound record. You're gonna find it. Go ahead, yeah. Michael, sort you out. That was fun, wasn't it? It was really fun. What a great shop. I've it's never, so good in there. Outside of Japan, I've never seen such a big um, old school hip hop disco rap section. That was amazing. See, now, listen, two shops in, I was taking you to um, completely weird, unplayable electronic <laughs> disco right up your street. And then disco rap heaven. Yeah, not bad. Um, this is, maybe I should live, maybe we should swap and I should live here. It's quite nice, it's quite nice, I'll tell you. Um, so, next one we're going to visit is yeah. called the Centre for Better Grooves. We okay. actually had it on the podcast when we did that little lockdown run uh, yes. when I came interviewed him. Yes. So this is Gordon and Dean, and Gordon's the main man, he, he runs it, and he also founded FOP Records. So wow. he built the whole FOP chain and then wow. got sick of it because it became <coughs> like a very uh, very big business thing and he wasn't selling records anymore. And he was like, I'm going to move to Bristol and open a niche record shop. And that's what he did. So this is completely different again. Yeah. Three record shops, completely different. Yeah. This one isn't a pile of high. This is a really reissues mostly. There's okay. a little secondhand stuff. Yeah. But what I like about this is, um, especially if you're into jazz and rare groove, Yeah. Gordon's got the experience. Gordon's you know your I mean? man. He, and so all brilliant reissues a lot of imports from america and, and japan and that sort of thing but it's just really well curated so if you're if you're into that scene you're going to find loads and loads of really good records here. love that bring it on oh god it's going to be good and it's behind this hi-fi shop so all stereo stuff at the front oh, and then out that. the back there's gordon at the desk just gonna say hello 
Oh, it's toasty in here too. Yeah, it's lovely and warm. Afternoon, Gordon. Hello, Evan. How are you doing? I'm all right. Didn't you have to turn around? Already. <laughs> this is Deb, who I do the podcast with. But yeah, we're on. A, we're doing another little podcast trawl of Bristol record shops. Okay. I have so. to say. This shop is a lot warmer than Prime Cuts. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot toastier in here than the basement. You've actually got some light in here as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a different Have you been, Is that where you've been, Prime Cuts? Yeah, we've done Prime, there. we did Disc Frisk at the top, so we're going down the hill. Okay. You're halfway down the hill. <laughs> the grand old Duke of York. <laughs> Over the hill, some might say, if they were really cool, but I wouldn't um, dare. No, no. I wouldn't dare. Oh, it's great. I've got that. It's amazing. Dollar brand African piano. It's um, one of those ones where you um, you put it on and you think, oh, this is nice, relaxing piano music. Yeah. And then about four minutes into the track, it's twisting your brain yeah. into places that you just didn't know you had. I love that. I play that a lot. Amazing. That's like kind of one of my end of the night. <laughs> There's yeah, nothing yeah, left. Yeah. No, no energy left to do anything. Just let it wash over that. you. I need my brain twisted. Do you know Black Christ of the Andes, the Mary, Mary Lou Williams record? No, no, no. I'm already in. I can feel it. Oh, so good. <laughs> I can definitely play this. I can definitely play this. The whole place just is amazing. It's going to be an expensive afternoon. <laughs> That's a fine selection you've picked out there. African piano. Well. Gary Bartz. You know my stuff, Eamon. Oh, yeah, I'm surprised. You should, you should work on radio. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'll keep that in mind. I mean, obviously you do know stuff, but I've already got three of those. Well, <laughs> I don't have a special, like, house to keep my doing? records in. Also, I'm much, much younger than you. That's true, that's true. And your energy levels show it. Yeah. You, you might not mentioning energy levels at the end. <laughs> we had a little energy boost there. That was good. Yeah, yeah you got it going. That was a, a shot in the arm. It's, it's done for you now, is it? Yeah. yeah. But I haven't been to a shop and bought as many records as one in one go as there I just did you, though. It's a very, uh, very good selection. This is one of the best record stuff. shops in the country. I know that. Jazz, I know that now. Yeah. It's unbelievably good. I'm going to have to come back. And I keep getting them, and you haven't been through the new ones. That's no, true. I can't even. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bankrupter. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. 
three record shots within half a mile of I've each other. I've enjoyed that experience more than I've enjoyed a little dig in a long, 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 long time. It's nice. There's isn't a it? lot of heart in those record shots. Everything is very. I don't know. It's just like you feel the passion and the. There's just there's just an enthusiasm and a and a love and a care taken yeah. with all the, three of those places in a different way. Yeah, because you get you get the one that's just like almost got no stock, but it's all really carefully selected yeah. and tailored. Then you've got one which is just like you know a mountain of records, and, but there are so many gems hidden in them. And yeah. then you get someone like Gordon who's just uses experience to yeah. pick out the very best. Yeah. Reunited because we understood. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. Do it tonight. That's right. Name that tune. Gordon cut his teeth in the glory days of grunge with his band The Sky Cries Mary, which Dave Grohl once described as the best band in Seattle. And his musical journey saw him unexpectedly play keyboards for the Psychedelic Furs and end up running his own record label, Shoplifter Records. But he is perhaps best known for producing one of the most exciting and well-respected rock bands on the planet, The Strokes, working on their seminal album, Is This It? and the follow-up, Room on Fire. His production credits also included Regina Spector, The Wild Heart, and many, many, many others. His new book, The World is Going to Love This, details his incredible story and journey through music, highlighting how the industry has its ups and downs, and he handles it all with grace and aplomb. So it is our pleasure to welcome Gordon Raphael to share his phonographic memory with us. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you very much. That was a very sweet introduction. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I do try. I do try. Now, I read the book uh, and uh, really enjoyed it. What I like about uh, your story is that so many exciting random things seem to happen to you. Like you're sort of walking along and this meteorite from outer space seems to land on you on a regular occurrence. Yeah, it, I, I always enjoy that about life. I kind of need that. I need surprises and things to come out of nowhere. And I think that became apparent while writing the book that there's a lot of those stories in there. Yeah, suddenly you'll be, uh, you know, just minding your own business and there'll be Ian Brown will phone up and come around and want to do a, do a gig or the psychedelic first say, oh, we need a keyboard player. I mean, these, these don't happen to mere mortals like us. This is, this is unusual stuff. <laughs> you seem to have found your way through the music industry. Uh, we were talking to Trevor Horn the other week and he was very much... I asked him whether he um, accidentally became a producer or whether it was part of his plan. He said, oh, very much my plan. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and produce records. You seem to have um, kind of felt your way into it a little bit. Tell us a bit about how you got started in, in production. Well, I realized when I was about 19 years old that my music was so strange and my approach to music was so unusual that I wanted to be able to record it by myself without anybody giving me a puzzled expression or shaking their head. I didn't want anybody there while I was coming up with my ideas. So I learned how to record 
and I always wanted to be an artist. Like making music is my number one thing, even to this day. And mm -hmm. at a certain point, uh, people bands bands started coming over and asking me to record them, and that became a production job, which I very much enjoy as well. When you say your your music was so unusual, where did the, can you expand on that a little bit? Where did that come from, and what about it made people <laughs> stroke well, their chins as they were listening? Right when I was starting to learn to write music, I was living in a rural area uh, near Seattle where there were a lot of cow fields mm -hmm. and certain psychedelic mushrooms tended to grow in the cow fields. Mm -hmm. And my fellow band members had a tendency to make this specially strong tea. And I would say that this, this special mushroom blend with my synthesizer sounds uh, hooked up through multiple echoes and phase shifters, it just started making strange ideas appear in my mind. Mm. And I ran with that for a long time. And what were you listening to? I mean, is this like, were you curious about music when you were growing up? Like besides the, the special mushroom tea, were you sort of seeking out unusual music? Yes. Um, my first two albums that I ever heard were we're Only In It For The Money by Frank Zappa mm -hmm. and <laughs> Sgt. Peppers. Amazing. They, bo they both came out the same year. And as a 10-year-old boy, oh, yeah. he hearing that sound and those ideas, it's, oh, this is what music is like. Mm -hmm. And so it made a very strong impression that to be a great musician, you had to go way out into outer space to make music. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love yeah. those two albums because, I mean, literally one's almost a riposte to the other. You know, it's like you have the, the completely wide-eyed, oh, hippie greatness of the Beatles. And then you've got like the, the kind of yippie side-eye sneering of, of Frank Zappa on the other side. But you got both at once. That must have really given you a rounded introduction into the world of rock music. Yeah, well, my dad brought them home. First the Beatles and then the, the Frank Zappa. And the Frank Zappa album is a stone-cold parody of yeah, the Beatles. Yeah, totally. it, the, the cover is the same, but inside out. And they're making fun of everything on the Beatles album, but it's still beautiful and psychedelic as hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it certainly is. Certainly sure. Is. I mean, some could argue that Sgt. Pepper is, owes a lot to Frank Zappa, which I guess is why he put out the... <laughs> this sort of pastiche of it but um you know that's a controversial <laughs> that's a polarizing conversation for another day perhaps um well we we know that the beatles were in love with the beach boys at mm -hmm. the time and they yeah, were just trying sure. to to go further go further yeah yeah for sure um can you talk about how you you obviously you say you were sort of in a uh, you grew up in a sort of rural patch outside seattle but the sound that you came to help to create is so, um, it's so New York. It's so New York of a certain era. So how did you end up in New York in the first place? Well, the truth of the matter is that I was born in New York and all my family members are from Brooklyn and the Bronx. Oh. So I did live for a while as a child in New York City and that definitely goes into the bloodstream. Mm. Uh, my dad grew up in the jazz scene there. And so this East Coast, West Coast uh, hybrid is what I would describe myself. Mm. The aggression and neuroticness of the East Coast with the mellow, laid back relaxation and exploration of the West Coast, perhaps. It's like a perfect balance for any music producer. I love that. 
<laughs> yeah, I think it works, actually. Yeah. You mentioned balance there. And again, we're thinking about, you know, the, the East Coast and the Seattle and all that sort of thing, kind of balancing each other out and maybe even Zappa and the Beatles balancing each other out. When I read the book, I thought there was quite a lot of times it seems like what you ended up doing was a, a counterbalance to what was happening at the time. I mean, certainly I can remember when... Because I, I was an old raver, so I was, you know, out in the field going doof, 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 having a lovely time. I, there were no guitars in my life for about three or four years. Um, and then, you know, you, you came back with the strokes and brought that whole proper rock. And not just like a, the polished rock that we'd kind of grown a little bit accustomed to. But it, it became grungy and dirty and very city and very like uh, unapologetic about its street feeling do you know what I mean you brought that really back to the fore at a time when everyone was overproducing everything you know it was all big Beyonce productions and you know shiny pop music and very very slick rock how did you find yourself in a position to to push that sound because I can't imagine there were many record labels at the time that were that were looking for that you're absolutely right when I met the Strokes and I started really liking their music and recording it, I felt sorry for them. I felt like, wow, nobody likes this kind of music anymore. <laughs> if, if, the, if the record labels hear this, this very tape that became the Modern Age EP, if the record labels hear that in New York, as soon as the guitar intro is heard, it will be in the bin. So <laughs> I, felt, I felt like they were just born a couple decades too late. Uh, I'm glad I was very wrong about that. Mm. So does yeah, that mean sure. that when you when you started working with them, because obviously, you know, you felt um, you felt a connection to them and you wanted to work with them. Did you feel when you were working on it like this is a losing game? I'm just this is a passion project. I believe in this, but it's not going to go anywhere. I think I'm always I've always, as you said, I've always been used to listening to obscure music mm. and things that are in fashion don't really matter to me. What matters to me is the impact of the sound is, is blowing my mind, no matter what it is, no matter what year. And so I did feel sorry for them, but I thought what they were doing was very good. And it, the thing that surprised me the most was that it seemed to reference things like the Velvet Underground and the Stooges, which people from my generation knew. And even though we knew it, it wasn't popular, that's for sure. And I wondered how did it skip down to this new generation of kids who are 20 years old? Why would they know about the Stooges and the Velvet Underground? That really took me by surprise. Yeah. The Strokes did you a great favor as well, because unlike a lot of bands who are young and starting out, um, Oh, whenever you get involved with big record labels like RCA or Universal or whoever, you know, there, there comes external pressure which can change and alter the sound and the, and the vibe that a band's going after. And they really stuck their neck out for you, didn't they? they, they you, had to, you had to convince uh, quite a few execs, you know, that, that, that you were doing the right thing and, and they stood by you. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what that felt like to get that pressure when you put so much love into a project. Well... We had this great success with the EP coming out on Rough Trade in the UK. But when mm. they got signed on a record label in the US, a very big record label, RCA, RCA took a listen to what we were recording and said, get rid of this clown, Gordon Raphael. He's ruining the music. <laughs> what is all that distortion? What is that horrible sound? You're wrecking the band's chance. Mm. And really, it seemed like for a while I was going to be let go of the job 
not because the guys wanted me to, but because of pressure from the record label. It takes a lot of chutzpah to, to just stand your ground, though, and hold it. And I think, um, I mean, you held it, and then, you know, they very nearly drifted away, and then I think they even started recording with someone else. But they came yes. back to you. What That must have felt incredible, like the validation of, of thinking, these guys believe in me as much as I believe in their music. Absolutely. Uh, they started the first album with a different producer, and I was, I was very sad. I thought I was going to be famous and this was going to be our great moment. <laughs> and I watched it walk out the door. And then two months later, I get a phone call like they want to come back and work with me. I literally jumped up and down for joy, oh, for sure. Amazing, amazing. And then it must have been such a, I mean, the validation that must have come when the music became, I mean, it, it's not just that the album was successful and the band was successful, it made that, it instigated this like return of popularity for that type of music. I mean, you must still be high on the validation from that. And, and it goes on. Yeah. I mean, as a producer, I'm getting calls from bands even today and yesterday and hopefully tomorrow that go like, we love the Strokes album. Can you come work in our country, in our studio? And so this thing continues. Amazing. I hope that record exec feels very embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep your nose out. Yeah. Exactly. I, I didn't even use his name in my book. I just called him like that guy, he that knows. guy from the a and <laughs> I, I, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. For yeah. legal reasons, we'll keep that one under our hat. But, you know, you really uh, enjoy like some fairly, you know, far out music like you say with, with the zapper and stuff and, and your own bands were very much influenced with the industrial and and synth sounds so you've been you know you've always had a bit of a taste for the, the stranger things and i think if we were yes. to jump into your first phonographic memory uh you yes. picked the beatles within you without you now yes. a lot of beatles fans you know they they, they get to the George Harrison sitar tracks and they're just not sure what to do. Did it immediately come to you and you, you think, yeah, oh, this is good. This is taking me somewhere. I heard that and I go, what is that sound? And what is he talking <laughs> about? What, you know, me and my 10 year old friends would sit there at recess, which we called our breaks in elementary school. And we wouldn't play kickball. We would play, we would talk about what the latest Beatles lyrics were, what they could possibly mean. And we're talking about the space between us all and the people who hide themselves behind a wall of illusion. Like, dude, as a 10 year old, you go, yeah, that's what life's all about. I can dig that. Let's, let's talk about it. <laughs> that, that's awfully young to have that kind of philosophical mindset, if you don't mind me saying. I, I had cool friends. <laughs> we were talking about the space between us and the
that track in particular I mean presumably you were kind of turned on to the Beatles in general at that age and like you say you were kind of following them what was it that made you pick that track in particular well 10 years old was the year that I got that album in my hands and I would just put on headphones and listen to it and to be honest with you just about every song on that album was really blowing my mind I think lovely Rita meter maid was probably the least of the interesting ones for me but I picked Within You and Without You when you asked me that question because it just sums up this like other world that probably never existed in popular music or young music at any place in the world. And here it comes mm. on that song. Yeah, for sure. Do you take that into the music that you produce? Do you have a sense of uh, introducing younger listeners, kind of expanding their minds in the way that your mind was expanded when you were 10? Yes. You know, my job is I go in a studio with a band and I start recording, setting up the drums and the amps and everything. And every single sound, the kick drum, the snare has to be like kind of wow. It can't just sound like, yes, that's a responsible and professional sounding snare drum. <laughs> like that's the last thing on my mind. When the guy hits the kick drum, I just want it to come out of the, the speakers and just push you in the stomach and the snare to snap your ears. Like every sound has to do a bit of a psychoacoustic job. Yes, I love that. I love that. Get kids away from the idea that responsible and professional. Oh, man, I don't I, I wouldn't know how to do that. I just can't. I can't go there. Yeah, I love yeah. the um, one of the passages in the book I really liked uh, was the the moment when um, you know you had the strokes already and you're already recording them. You recorded them initially, essentially as almost a live band, you know, with, with the vocals being done over later. So it's yeah. a very live kind of rock and roll experience. And then you got taken aside and asked quietly whether you could. Um, make it sound a bit like a drum machine without upsetting the drummer. Now, I love what you did. Tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you did with that strange request. Well, apparently Julian had written the songs using a drum machine, you know, and mm. um, on a certain couple of tracks, he said, I love the sound of the drum machine. Is there any way that we can like make that sound? But I don't want Fab to be sitting out on the first album, his first thing he's ever been involved with having him sit out on three songs would be really insulting. What can we do? And it didn't take me long because I brought in my industrial music knowledge. Like you could just make any sound into any sound if you process it heavily. And mm. so I set about to make Fab's drums sound like the dinkiest, weirdest drum machine in the world. <laughs> That's such a great like, thing to do because I, I think, um, 
most most people wouldn't consider it be i mean i thought it was a drum machine i, I couldn't believe that it was actually all played when, when i read that i was like oh i really thought that was some sort of bit of roland git you must have recorded it in a, in a very specific way to, to keep yes. those sounds so individual absolutely uh, because of my in love of industrial music i used drum machines for decades and so i know the difference between a real drum sound and a drum machine sound and so I did things like push the drums as far away from each other as possible where he could still reach them, but the sound of one was not going to leak into the other one. It just sounded weird, like a machine. That's, that really is the art of production. When you get a request from someone and then you, it's kind of your job really to, to find the practical solutions to those ideas. I mean, is it, do you feel like, production is, is kind of just an interpreter's job in a way, or is, is it more than that? For me, production is a, a couple things. It's having enough experience with all the equipment needed to make sounds. That's one half of it. But the main thing that I use is, as a musician and a composer myself, I'm looking for what's in that guy's heart. Like, what's he trying to do here? And let's do that. That's like, it's very simple. And sometimes it takes some psychology of making sure they're comfortable and relaxed or getting along with their band members or well-fed, etc. Anything to make the music really pop out. Have you got any stories about how you facilitated that? I'd love to know some of your techniques and sort of uh, helping bands to get comfortable enough to share that with you. Well, I have one secret weapon that surprises the studios I use. It surprises the band members and it's great. And that is, instead of on the first day, when the band is paying money for the studio, paying money for me, and then we take six hours of their time to just set up all the microphones, and they lose all their energy, and they start drinking beer at 11 a.m. or something, just to deal with the, board <laughs> the boredom of watching these boring wires get put together. I like to get it done the day before they come. Like, work with the studio, have everything set up so that as soon as they get there, they drink their coffee, smoke a cigarette, and then they start playing music right away at 11 in the morning. And that just blows everyone's mind. Usually before lunch, there's a song finished. And they go, this is going to be easy. Like, we already got one done. This is great. And that sets up an energy avalanche that I think not many people think about. I love that. That's such an important, I feel like you're right. You don't often hear about that. Yeah, because that's so important to sort of manage, manage the energy levels of the band yeah. themselves to try and get the best out of them rather than just doing this perfunctory sort of setting everything up. You know, it's such an important part of it. And I imagine that's a sort of something you have in common with many of the best producers. I hope so. <laughs> Someone who can facilitate your ideas quickly, I think is really important, especially when you've got a medium that's as immediate as music, you know, like, you know, you, you, especially, you know, you think about the strokes and the energy they've got, man, if you over polish that, then, then it's done, it's cooked, it's no good anymore, do you know? There's a great lyric on the first album of the strokes, where Julian says, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I'm not listening anymore. <laughs> I think I think that's especially for people who work in music studios. They have a tendency to think that just because they've been doing it a long time, they don't have to listen to these young upstart musicians when they present their ideas. 
Speaking of young upstarts, should we move on yes. to your second phonographic memory, which is uh, the David Bowie track, John, I'm Only Dancing. What can you tell yes. us about your connection to this track? Well, um, when I was a youngster and I first saw David Bowie albums appearing in the shops, which would have been probably Diamond Dogs at the time, I was very worried. Like, wait, there's a rock and roll guy and he's wearing an earring and has makeup? Uh, I was very afraid. Where's rock and roll going? And it really bothered me at first, so I just bought the Pink Floyd album instead. <laughs> However, a couple years later, I fell madly in love with David Bowie and his music. And my favorite song of all for that artist is John, I'm Only Dancing. It just sums up everything I like about Bowie in one song. got like probably one of the biggest Bowie obsessives <laughs> in the I'm world trying, on the other end of the line. Contain I'm yourself, so, David. Go I'm on. so biting my tongue because I'm, <laughs> I'm absolute Bowie nut. So I'm just like, oh, let's talk Bowie. <laughs> lovely, lovely. But John Amelie Dancing is actually quite an unusual track to pick as well. It's kind of really a single more than anything else. And uh, of course, there was two versions. Uh, one came later, which is more of a disco thing. But I think you're on about the first one, really. Uh, yeah, the disco it's... one is the disco one is yucky. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you didn't, you didn't enjoy but, that one. No, I agree. It's not but, as good as the first. The first one is just nasty. It's dirty. It's sleazy, and that's what I mm. like about it. <laughs> yeah, it's got a really lovely, lively energy to it as well. Like there's a brightness and a and a, and a real kind of almost like a cheeky wink you know it gives you as it comes out the speaker it's, it's just it's just got a familiarity Bowie was very good at kind of um coming out and talking directly to people you know he, he really managed to to break down that wall didn't he yes absolutely he felt like my best friend for most of my growing up years can you talk to us a little bit about Bowie's influence on your own production style mm, I think again I probably never really copied the sounds or the recording techniques or worked. I never worked with a musician like Mick Ronson or a voice like Bowie before. But again, it was that in your face, shock you, completely do something unexpected, unapologetically. Those are fundamentals of my whole view of music and production right there. Mm. John Amelie Dancing also has that kind of quirky sort of feedback noise at the game. It's like, you know, there's like a weird kind of kind of sound. Absolutely. And, and you can tell it's an accident. You can tell it's like something that happened, but they kept it in. And I, I know you, your productions occasionally do that. The start of the strokes has that weird, like rewinding sound at the, at the yes. start of the album and stuff. I mean, those happy accents, do you, do you kind of keep an ear out for those? Is that something that you, I you always do. I always do. The first strokes album has plenty of examples of that. There's like, him talking while he's getting ready for singing and yeah, yeah, they, that's great, they, that. 
they never thought that was going to stay in. And they looked at me like I fell off the Christmas tree when I said, that's staying in. <laughs> and when they listened to it like that, they went, oh, yeah, that's cool. Let's keep it in. Mm. I love stuff like that. Like you say, it kind of makes you feel a little bit closer to the band. It makes you feel like you're in on something. It has a really kind of um, intimate effect. Absolutely. Mm. The great thing about Bowie's influence on music, I think, isn't because I think he's a very hard person to copy. I don't think, you know, you can easily copy Elvis or even the Beatles or whatever. There's something like very easy to latch onto. Oh, the, the mop tops in suits or the, the guy with the sneer and the, the rock and roll wiggle or whatever. But Bowie, for a start, every album is different. And, yes. you know, he always changes his look, ch changes his name. Everything about him is different every time. So he can't just, you know, pick a, a, a little bit and then do a Bowie impression on him. And I think that's what makes it interesting is that you say the influence comes from like his whole kind of persona, you know, shocking you and, and changing things. That's that's really his gift, isn't it? Yes, I certainly never saw any rock bands in Camden where those Kenzo Japanese outfit like Bowie did. Uh, no one even tried. No one even tried. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm going to put mine on now. <laughs> I'll look, okay. look delightful in those. Now, listen, um, I, I won't carry on about David Bowie because um, because I, I do that most episodes anyway. But I love your third choice as well. Colorbox are such an underrated wow. band and breakdown 12 inch version i love that you put the 12 inch version as well as a man yes. who knows what he's doing do you know what i mean and, uh, and did i also yeah. did i also say a start time because there's yeah, well, a, a yeah. special spot a special spot i want people to hear that's at, that's why i like the song tell us exactly where the spot is and why you like it and how you came to come across it um i can't tell you the exact number of the spot it's near kind of near the ending because as the song goes along, it turns from something kind of predictably dancey to something so abstract and electronic using the greatest technology available in the 80s, which still I don't think has been surpassed for the tricks they could do with it and the innovation that it afforded. Um, it just turns so strange and so just utterly mind-boggling that I want people to hear it, even if you only play 20 seconds of it, play that spot. who like for my money were just just miles ahead of their time and really i think when they came out uh, people didn't really know what it was they were doing did they 
No, uh, nobody had heard sounds like that. That's why I literally was, I was on tour in Canada with a band. And when that song came on the radio, I literally fell off my seat. I like, uh, what is this? And I went onto like my knees on the ground on the van because it was so earth shattering. Wow. Yeah, they, serious. I mean, for those for those who haven't heard it, Colorbox were like were, were very early experiments of the sampler, and uh, they they had an electronic uh, sort of sensibility, but they also had quite a soulful songwriting ethic. You know, they they wrote some beautiful songs. I don't know if you know this, but a couple of years after they were Colorbox, they came out with that song "Pump Up the Volume" under yeah, a different name. And they Miles, basically yeah. set they set an incredible trend in music for the next decade. So these guys were innovators from way back, and they had their vindication a little later. It's a little bit like you, <laughs> same oh. story as you, Gordon. <laughs> well, takes one to know one. <laughs> <laughs> this, is it. this is it. All three of these um, uh, things you've chosen, all three of the tracks you've chosen, they're actually all English. That's very interesting oh. because because you, you a lot of your work is is quite American. I mean, you can't get more American in New York than the Strokes. They are just the epitome. They are basically if they don't arrive in a yellow taxi, you, what are, what are you going to do? But all right. three of these are very English sounding. Was was the English sound always something that you you looked for and and you you sought out? Well. There is a lot in my book about my worship and love of British rock and roll. And so as soon as we finished making Is This It, I had an opportunity to come to London and work. And I basically stayed for three years just to be in the culture. And that's why I'm here now. I mean, there's something about the UK and the music scene and the way that young people make music here. It, they really believe in it and they do an amazing job. And I just, it always spoke to my heart. Well, I, I enjoyed the le later passages in the book because uh, it was all where I used to live in London. <laughs> it, was all, it was all talking right? about like, the edge of Shoreditch and Mother and 333 and traffic and all these other places that I'd regularly been to. And uh, I, was, I was quite, I didn't expect really your your journey to, to come over here and for you to find such a home here. Because at the start of the book, I was reading about a guy who was, you know, into like almost prog psychedelia and grunge and all these things and very rock orientated. But then by the end of the book, it seems like you'd become much more um, interested in the art of things, you know, rather than the, mm -hmm. the power of things. Yes, but... Even the prog that I was listening to, which made me go deep into my keyboards, you know, Hammond organ, mm. Mellotron, synthesizer, all that was British. Speaking of keyboards, now, um, mm. I almost mentioned this during the David Bowie, because I guess it's kind of related. Um, but uh, when I was growing up, obviously David Bowie was my number one. But the band that made me realize I wasn't like the other kids in school were the Psychedelic Furs. Oh, uh, wow. And I can just remember getting a copy of Forever Now and playing it to people. And even before that, I think Talk, Talk, Talk was the first one I was really into. Uh, and trying to play it to my friends and they all looked at me like I was a crazy madman. What is this rubbish you're listening to? And I knew that our paths were just going in different directions. Now, what's it like to be minding your own business and get a phone call <laughs> saying, would you join the Psychedelic Furs? <laughs> Tell us a bit well, about that. 
The story goes that when the first Psychedelic Furs album showed up in Seattle where I was living, I put it on, or friends put it on, and I said, who is this awful Bowie imposter? And I got really <laughs> angry. Well, within a month or two, they were one of my favorite bands, and I was listening to everything they did. I just loved that group. So my, my tune changed. And then, yeah, when they called me to go out on the road with them, it, it really blew my mind. I, I wasn't expecting that. It came completely out of left field. And meeting them and going on the road and playing all those songs I'd grown up with and loved, that, that was a real highlight. Must have been, must have been, just to, to have it. I, what I liked about it was um, it, it, it comes at a period of the book where you're kind of like thinking, oh, what am I going to do next? And then right. you just, like I said, I said at the start, you know, your whole story seems to be these incredible, unexpected meteorites of either fortune or just, you know, some something strange, some something wicked this way comes. Do you know what I mean? Yes, you still find yes. yourself looking for the for the the unexpected. Is is that what really excites you when something you're you're not really familiar with happens? I, I would say I'm a little bit addicted to that kind of thing. If it doesn't happen, if something weird or great or unusual doesn't happen for a while, I kind of start feeling a bit down. It's like, what, where is it? When's it coming? Uh, for example, last week I spent the whole week at Abbey Road Studios recording a band from Finland. And I've never been there before. I've never seen the building. I've never been in there. And I was right in the middle of it for seven days in a row. It was a, it was incredible. A band called New Silver Girl, they're from Helsinki, Finland. And when I lived in Berlin, they always wanted to use the best studio in Berlin, which was Hansa, where they recorded David Bowie Lowe and Iggy Pop, The Idiot and Lust for Life. And so they said, oh, now you're living in England, let's use the best studio in England, Abbey Road. They just always want to have this artistic experience on a high level. And so I got to go there and eat at the cafeteria and see pictures of the Beatles eating in the same cafeteria. And we used the Beatles room. We were in the actual control room and live room that the Beatles recorded everything there. And wow, what a surprise. I'm still buzzing from it, to be really honest. That sounds awesome. Before we let you go, so the book, which is a beautiful book, it kind of looks like something you'd pick up in a... um, in like a vintage uh, bookshop. It's got this real sort of 70s aesthetic. But the reason that you uh, decided to write this book was because you're so full of these anecdotes. Like Eamon was saying, you know, some things that just come like bolts out of the blue and you were kind of encouraged to like write all this stuff down. Can't, do you have like a favorite anecdote or a favorite little story from the book that you can share with us? I think one of my favorite stories and where I got the title of the book is when I'd already moved to London, I'd spent an entire year recording the best rock bands in town, and I I get a call from a friend, like, are you coming to New York anytime soon? And I go, yeah, I'm on my way tomorrow. I'm going to have Christmas parties, and I'm going to party for a week straight. And my friend said, would you like to work? I've got this really great artist named Regina Spector. And I said, oh, no, I'm not going to work. I've already recorded the best bands, and I need a break. And I go to New York and I meet Regina Spector and she plays me one song and I think, oh my God, the world is going to love this. I have to record this. Is the studio free right now? Yes. And so again, out of the blue, I begin recording an artist that changed my life, one of the greatest 
people I've ever recorded. And the way that happened and the music we made from it is one of the great stories in the book. Yeah. Mm, Did you ever get your week off to party? <laughs> or yeah. was that enough for you? <laughs> I did not. I worked oh, no. every single day of that week with her. And then I went to Seattle and I actually partied for three or four days in Seattle okay. with my family and friends. And then I came back to New York and I recorded more with her. Then I came to London and brought her with me and we recorded more until we had the album Soviet Kitsch. Amazing, amazing. How do you um, how do you find because uh, uh, one of the things I thought was very interesting is your your original um, studio in New York was something that you'd very much built yourself you know and, and got everything together yourself and even painted the purple glitter on the walls and all that kind of stuff so really made it your thing mm-hmm. and then you get to another level of production where suddenly you're going to different studios as a producer is it very is it is it a challenge to go into a completely new studio. And, and, and try and make your magic happen again. I mean, is it, I guess in football you'd say it's a home match and a away match, you know. Is that, is that how it feels to you or is it, is it actually quite exciting? Is it something that, that gets you going? It's completely thrilling and exciting to go to studios in Argentina and London and Brazil and everywhere. I love going to studios. However, mm. you brought up a very good point and that is I haven't really had a good studio of my own since I lived in London, I had one in Limehouse there. And I really miss having my own studio. It just gets harder and harder and more and more expensive to build a place in a nice city where you could get coffee and good food. The costs are <laughs> prohibitive and there's a real active thing in every city to get noisy stuff out. Go further, go into the industrial area, go out of town. And I don't want to go out of town because I want all the luxury of the best parts of the city every day while I'm recording. So it makes mm. no sense to go into some lonely location to make music. <laughs> I always find that interesting when, you know, the, the, the difference, quite often a band will, will do their first thing in the, in the city where they're from or close to it. And then uh, for, for some obscure reason, quite a lot of the time they then get sent to North Wales or, you know, out of Mongolia to, to do the next album. And of course, yeah. you, they've lost all their reference points and that can that can often change how they write and, and, and what they come up with. Right. I think I just love going to different cities like Buenos Aires, I bring it up again, and Mexico City, just going there and eating that food and meeting people from the area. For me, it's kind of why I got into music in the first place. I want to see mm. the world. I want to meet people. I love being in my hometown, no matter which my hometown happens to be. But I just love just the same amount leaving. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can really see the love coming through the pages of your book. So I, I heartily recommend that. Um, what, 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 who's publishing it? Can you remind us? It's Wordville, a great uh, company. I'm so grateful to them for helping me edit it and for making it available to the world. It really is a beautiful book and it's full of amazing stories. And it's just got that... I don't know, it's just got that amazing New York sensibility. And, um, you know, I, I sort of came of age in like the early 2000s. That was when I was like an older teenager. And um, yeah, it's a very nostalgic <laughs> period for me. <laughs> so really enjoyed the book. And thank you so, so much for speaking to us, Gordon. 
Thanks, yeah, Deb, and, and thank you very much for having me on your show and for helping me talk about my book and everything like that. It's an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I, I look forward to hearing uh, these recordings from Abbey Road and everything else that you come out with. OK, I'll send it to you. Please do. Please <laughs> do. Best of luck. <laughs> See you so later. Much, Gordon. Bye. Thanks Bye. for having me. Pleasure. Bye bye. Dear listener, we really hope you enjoyed this Christmas special. We really enjoyed it. We really enjoyed giving it to you. And now we want you to give it to someone else. Go out there. Find some poor waif or stray, some friend or relative, some little Timmy Cratchit, and give them the gift of podcasts this year. Tell them to search what goes around, wherever they get their podcasts from. <laughs>